If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, as we continue our study of Christ, above all, from the book of Colossians. This book, if you recall, is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that was having quite a bit of problems. Problems that, uh, as we saw several weeks ago, mirror a lot of what we're seeing in American Christianity today. On the one hand, there was this call from certain individuals in this church for special knowledge and mystical experiences. That if you're ever really going to be able to truly know God and live life for His honor and glory, you've got to have all these special visions, these utterances, these experiences, because simply knowing Jesus Christ by faith is not enough. And on the other hand, there was also going on in this church a call for all these extra-biblical rules and regulations. That if you're ever going to truly be able to live for God, you've got to have all these, um, these external, extra-biblical guidelines in your life about what you should and should not do. Because again, knowing Christ by faith is not enough. Well, in light of that, Epaphras travels over 1,300 miles to talk to Paul who was in Rome uh, because the believers that were there in Colossae were dangerously close to accepting these destructive teachings. And so Paul, concerned by what he has heard from the faithful Epaphras, writes this letter to the church in Colossae. And what a burden, by the way, when you think about it, to have a church that was so filled with believers and was so flourishing in supernatural love and hope, only to have their spiritual life being threatened by this horrible teaching that Jesus is not enough, that you need something more in your life. How do you pray for people like that? To make it very practical, how do we as American Christians living in eerily similar circumstances to Colossae pray for those around us who are right now, this morning, being led astray from a pure devotion to and commitment and contentment in Christ. We'll see this morning from Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 as Paul lifts up a prayer to God for the Colossian church to come to understand more fully the truth that transforms That theme is our roadmap for the passage this morning. This passage before us today is a prayer for truth to produce transformation. A prayer for truth to produce transformation. So first, we'll see the prayer for truth that Paul gives in verse 9. And then we'll look at the transformation that Paul intends in verses 10 through 14. He wanted the Colossians to understand a very important truth. A truth that when rightly understood and grasped would completely transform those Colossians' life. This is how to pray for those of us who are living in Colossae. Pray for the truth to produce transformation. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Paul writes, And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God whose hands have made and fashioned us and whose spirit gives us understanding that we might learn his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that it is a truth that transforms. We thank you that this morning, this passage begins to unveil to us the glory of your son Jesus Christ and all that we have in him. Father, I simply pray that that the truth of your word would be crystal clear this morning. Father, I pray that I would not stand in the way, but that your word would have free course, that it would plant itself deep within the hearts and minds of every person here today. Father, I pray that all of us would be changed by your omnipotent word, that we might be able to walk out of this place walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you. Bring about a change in our life that we desperately need, a transformation by your truth, for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage begins this morning with Paul immediately launching right into a prayer for truth. That's in verse 9 where Paul writes this. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing I want you to see here that Paul's prayer for the Colossians was stimulated. Paul says here, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Heard of what? Well, what we looked at last week, ever since Paul had heard of the Colossian believers' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resultant love and hope that they had in him. Ever since he heard of that report from Epaphras, he felt compelled to pray for them. Though the church was riddled with dangerous deceptions, the moment that Paul heard evidence that they were indeed new creations in Christ, born again by the Spirit, he never ceased to pray for them. Isn't that interesting? It was not primarily the bad things that caused Paul to pray for the Colossians. It was the good things that caused him to pray for them. It was because they were experiencing, by God's grace, beneath the faithful shepherding of Epaphras, a growing faith, hope, and love that Paul felt compelled to pray for this church. There's great conviction in this as I was thinking about it because Paul was motivated as much by positive things as he was by negative. Often we only feel compelled to pray for things when things are bad, right? When I'm up against the wall, I'm on my knees. When I've broken through that wall, so often I get right back up and continue on as if I don't need God at all. And I disengage from strenuous prayer. Paul was the exact opposite. 
He saw believers who were growing in their faith, their hope, and their love, and he felt compelled to pray for them more, not less. How many, as I was thinking about it this week, how many children and adults in our own ministries do we neglect in prayer because they just don't give us that much trouble? Have you ever thought about that? I know I used to be on a bus ministry. The bad kids were really easy to pray for because they were going to give me problems that Sunday. The good kids I often didn't think about at all. That's wrong. That's wrong. What about that good kid that just keeps on coming every week, that's always polite, takes notes, is slowly growing? Those Davids that are left in the sheep fields. Who's praying for them? They're often neglected. And that's wrong because while they may not have a crisis going on in their life, they have a relationship with God. They have faith. They have hope. They have love. And we all need to be praying for that relationship to grow. We need to pray for those in our faith family here at Grace Chapel who are doing well whose walk with God uh, is doing well and that it would need to deepen and grow. And so Paul here was stimulated in his prayer life by grace, not simply by fault, by a heart of thanksgiving, not simply frustration. Second, Paul's prayer for truth was sustained. He writes here, from the day we heard, we have not done what? Ceased to pray for you. Listen, if it's right to start praying for a person or issue, it is vital to keep on praying. As Ephesians 1.16 says, to remember each other in our prayers. How convicting. How often have we told someone, I will pray for you, and we quickly forget them in our prayers and stop praying for them. To how many people have you ever said in your lifetime, I'll pray for you, and then you actually don't do it? Have you ever wondered, that's probably why the world mocks us when some tragedy happens on a world scale and Christians start responding on social media or elsewhere saying, pray for such and such. And they say, we don't need your prayers. Why? Because they recognize that for most of us as believers, when we say, we'll pray for you, it is just an empty expression with no reality of power and truth behind it. When we say, I'll pray for you, we should pray. And that's what Paul did. From the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you we need people who do more than simply say i'll pray but who actually do and keep on doing it until the matter is resolved or the need is met so paul's prayer we see here was stimulated it was sustained and we'll see at the end of verse 9 that paul's prayer was specific he says asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so how do we pray for people Uh, who are around us who are being led astray by Satan's subtleties from a pure devotion to and contentment with Christ. We need to pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I love that because Paul here takes the word that the mystics and the pagan oracles were using to describe their supposed special knowledge. It was gnosis. And Paul intensifies it here by saying epigenosis. In other words, Paul was saying, I want you to be filled to the brim with a real, deep, experiential knowledge of God's will. Better than any of those things the charlatans are promising you. A real knowledge of God's will. And then when you follow Paul's logic throughout chapter 1, he tells us how we get that knowledge of God's will. It is given to you, verse 12, by the Father. Where? Verse 14, in Christ Jesus. How? Verse 25, through the word of God. 
That is the greatest need. And Paul recognized it there in the Colossian church. The greatest need for any believer is to have a knowledge of God's will as revealed in Scripture. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And Ephesians 4.13-14 says that when people lack a knowledge of God's will, they remain like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That was happening to the believers there in Colossae. And so Paul prays that they would be filled with, with a knowledge of God's will, that they would know God's will and not just know it, but he says be filled with it. God's will is not to be an intellectual curiosity that we just push to the outskirts of our life and only consider when it's convenient for us. No, God's will, Paul says here, is meant to fill us. That is to completely dominate and control you. For example, if I was to have up here this morning a mug and I was to fill this mug to the brim with coffee, that mug would be completely dominated by coffee. There would be no room for anything else in that mug but coffee. That is the idea of to be filled. You are dominated. You're filled. You're controlled by it. Some of you might be thinking this morning, that's exactly my relationship with coffee this morning. I am filled, dominated, and controlled with it. Well, I want you to know this morning, that is to be your relationship to God's will. It ought to fill you. It ought to dominate you so that it controls you. That's what Paul is saying here. James 1, 21-22 says it this way, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only. Let it fill you, that it might control you. Like Paul says later on in Colossians three sixteen of this letter, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it fill you. Let it control you. Let God's word dominate your thoughts, your intentions, and your life. So that's why Paul prays that this knowledge of God's will would exist within an environment of all, notice, spiritual wisdom and understanding. In short, wisdom is that settled knowledge of first principles. And understanding is the ability to apply those basic principles to the issues of life. See, Paul wasn't praying for a basic head knowledge of God's truth to be given to the Colossians. He was praying for a heart knowledge. That they would receive and that they would grasp a deep knowledge of God's word that did not puff them up, but rather produced within them a real life change and transformation for the glory of God. The word of God is not meant to be stayed up in here. It is supposed to integrate and saturate the rest of your life. Which leads us right up into the next point. Because Paul does more than just deliver a prayer for truth here. He gives a prayer for truth to produce transformation. And that is our end goal. That's our next point. A prayer for truth to produce transformation. That's in verses 10 through 14. Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? He says there in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. See, that's the purpose of truth. It is to produce transformation. I don't care how many sermons you have sat under during your lifetime. 
I want to know how much has your life changed under those sermons. I don't want to know how many times you have read your Bible through. I want to know how much your life has changed by reading your Bible through. That's the purpose of truth. It is to produce transformation. It's not to acquire a head knowledge. It is to acquire a transformed life for the glory of God. We must see things God's way so that we can do things God's way. That's the purpose of truth. Now first look at the wonderful truth that Paul mentions here. We as believers can live in a way that pleases God. Right? That is awesome. That is the great desire of our hearts in Christ Jesus. It is to live for the glory and pleasure of God. As 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, we make it our aim to please Him. We are saved for the glory of God alone, and we live for the glory of God alone. By how we live, we can show others that Jesus is worthy and wonderful. That is why we are here. But to do so requires an ongoing transformation that can only be produced by truth please do not miss what i am about to tell you this morning the only way that you will ever be able to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him in christ jesus is if you are continually being filled with the knowledge of god's will you cannot separate transformation from the truth One always goes with the other. See, we as Christians are often tempted to think, I don't have time to read God's Word. How convicting to realize that when we say that, I don't have time to read God's Word, what we're really saying is, I don't have time to live a life that pleases God. That's really what we're saying. Because none of us can live a transformed life for the glory of God apart from being filled with the knowledge of God's will. So I have a question for you this morning. A question that I asked myself this week. And if I've suffered, you're going to suffer too. Okay? (laughs) What is more important in your life right now than living for the glory and pleasure of God? What is more important in your life right now than living for the glory and pleasure of God? You might be thinking this morning, I don't know. Let me give you a clue. It is whatever is keeping you out of God's word on a regular basis. That's what's more important in your life right now than living for the glory and honor of God. Is it your job? Is it your kids' extracurricular social activities? Is it your friends? Is it your TV? Your hobbies? Your computer? Your games? Whatever it might be. Listen, believer. Nothing is more important a priority than pleasing God. And therefore, nothing is more important of a priority than making time to read God's Word. It is... The word of grace, which is able to build you up. We need the truth. We need the truth that transforms. Paul recognized that. 
and a life that is feeding on God's word, that's being transformed by God's grace, is an exciting life. I want you to know that Paul describes it for us from the end of verse 10 into verse 14. As God begins to grant you a deeper and fuller knowledge of his will as recorded in scripture, Paul shows us that you will live a life that is more fruitful, more powerful, and more thankful for the glory of God. And that's the type of life I want to live. So first, the truth that transforms produces a more fruitful life. Paul says this at the end of verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he defines what that life looks like. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I love this. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are saved by God's grace through faith unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will and controlled by it is that you begin to live a life where everything you touch is blessed and produces fruit for the glory and pleasure of God. James 3.17 says this, The wisdom that is from above is first full of mercy and good fruits. So if you dive into the transforming truth of this book, you are going to experience a lot of spiritual fruit in your life. What kinds of fruit? I wish I had more time to go into it, but how about the fruit of peace and righteousness? The very next verse in James, James 3.18, talks about a harvest of righteousness that produces peace. The peaceable fruit of righteousness, as Hebrews 12.11 describes it. Knowing God's will also produces the fruit of praise. Hebrews 13.15 talks about the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Another fruit of knowing God's word is making disciples. In 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul called the house of Stephanus, which he had led to the Lord, as the first fruits of all those in Achaia. And finally, the fruit that flourishes beneath the watering of God's word is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Righteousness, peace, praise, discipleship, Christ-like character, all of these fruits come from letting the Holy Spirit fill you with the knowledge of God's Word. As Paul says, you'll be bearing fruit in every good work as you're increasing in the knowledge of God, as you are growing in the truth. As 1 Peter 2.2 says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, the Word, that by it you may grow in salvation truth produces transformation faith produces fruit so the truth that transforms produces a fruitful life second it produces a powerful life look at this paul says in verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy Notice, Paul says that as we allow ourselves to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, we find ourselves being strengthened with power. That is a continuous, present participle, meaning it will keep on happening in your life. See, we often view the Christian life as something that starts off with a push of power, right? At our initial salvation. Something that starts off fast, but inevitably it's going to slow down. You hear some Christians talk that way, don't you? That you'll almost irresistibly slow down, settle down, and grow cold in your walk with God. Don't settle for that, believer. 
That's a lie. That is not what Paul says here when he describes the Christian life. In his mind, the Christian life is one that is marked by continual power, continual strength, continual fervency, and continual faith. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says this, But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait for the Lord, who listen to Him, who are watching daily at His gates, they will be continually strengthened by His power, it says here, according to His glorious might. Think of that. Think about that. Notice, it doesn't say out of His glorious might. It says according to His glorious might. See, if a millionaire was to walk up to you today and say, I want to give you money out of my millions, that could be any amount from five cents to whatever. But if a millionaire walked up to you and said, I want to give you money according to my millions, I want to give you money that's reflective of the millions that I possess, get ready for something that will truly take your breath away. And that is exactly what God says to us here regarding his power. God says that if we keep on taking in his transforming truth, it doesn't matter what issue you're struggling with personally, what sin you're struggling to overcome, he tells us here that we will be continually strengthened according to his own glorious might. Daily power in accordance to God's own might. God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's truly glorious. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. We will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. But why? See, we would often think, oh, God's going to strengthen me in my daily walk with him so that I can display his glorious power By doing all these amazing miracles, right? He's going to give me power, I don't know, so that I can run across hot coals, (laughs) so that I can, you know, run faster than a locomotive and jump over tall buildings in a single bound. Like, that's God's how, that's how he's going to display his almighty power in my life, right? I mean, that's how we can show the world that God really exists, right? Through miracles, through experiences, through special utterances, through everything that the mystics were telling the Colossians. And Paul says, oh, no. That's not how the world will know that God exists. That's not how God's going to display his power for a watching world. God displays his omnipotent power in this world, in believers, for all endurance and patience with joy. Ladies and gentlemen, that is how God displays his power in us. Not through mystical knowledge or fantastical experiences. No, the power of God is on display in this world whenever a believer can patiently endure trials with joy. That's when you show the world that God is real. It's when God sends into your life a trial that would be overwhelming, and yet you can patiently endure it with all joy. That takes power. Jesus displayed that power, did he not? According to 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That takes supernatural power. Now, when I go through a trial and I try to stand up for my own rights and I get angry and I get anxious and I get fearful and I get, just want to lash out at the world, when that happens, that is weakness. But when I go through a trial and I can patiently bear up under it with great joy, that shows the world that Jesus Christ is real and he is alive in the hearts of his people. That type of patient, enduring, joyful power only comes, it only comes as we allow God's word to continually fill us to the brim and control us. So Paul prays for truth to produce transformation in the Colossian believers because God's truth produces a fruitful life. God's truth produces a powerful life. And finally, God's truth produces a thankful life. This is in verses 12 through 14. Paul writes that the result of filling ourselves up with the truth of God's word is that we would begin, he says here, giving thanks to the Father. If you're not in the truth of God's word, your thankful heart will dry up and shrivel up and you'll be not content about a single thing. But if you get into the watering of God's word daily, your heart will flourish with a garden of thanksgiving to the glory of God. The more we come to know the will and word of God, the more we will be thankful to him. Why? Because God has done four marvelous things for us in Christ, things that we do not deserve, things that frankly deserve an entire sermon and of themselves, but I'm just going to do this really quick. First, we ought to have a heart of thanksgiving this morning because God has qualified us. Giving thanks to the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice, we did not qualify ourselves for salvation and eternal glory. God qualified us through the perfect and finished work of Christ. So your life's not working out very well here on earth? Well, God didn't promise you an inheritance here. He promised you an inheritance with Him in glory among all the saints. Right? He qualified us for this inheritance of the saints in light through the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for our sake. That happened at the cross so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As Paul says later in Colossians 2 verse 14, later on in this letter, we had a record of debt that was standing against us with its legal demands, but this God set aside by nailing it to the cross. And because of that qualifying work, we who trust in Jesus Christ can share in the inheritance of the saints in light where God himself dwells. We now belong to glory because God has decided that we would belong to him. That is awesome. So God has qualified us. You ought to be thankful this morning. You're headed to an inheritance in heaven. Second, God has delivered us. This is at the beginning of verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Oh, look at the news. We live in a domain of darkness. Satan is the ruler of this age. But look at the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, God drew 
us out from under Satan, sin, and death's power. That domain of darkness that enslaved us under death and hell and Satan himself no longer has power over you, believer. The fear is gone. The guilt is gone. Jesus himself has shattered Satan's power by his death on the cross. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As 1 John 4, 4 states, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God has delivered us. God has qualified us. God has delivered us. Third, God has transferred us. This is the end part of verse 13 where he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. That is completely transported us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. When God placed you into Christ by faith, you became a citizen of an eternal kingdom which Jesus, over which Jesus, your Savior, is both Lord and King. That is fantastic. We don't belong to any kingdom here on earth. Therefore, whoever rules over any kingdom here on earth is of no eternal importance to us. We belong to an eternal kingdom that possesses an eternal king, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is fantastic. We are now citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, whose founder and builder is God. An eternal kingdom that will never decline, that will never pass away, that will go on and on and on to greater and greater and greater glory. You belong to that believer. Your identity is secure in that. Rejoice in that this morning and the kingdom of God goes on no matter what the headlines are in the morning when you wake up you ought to be able to say this and the kingdom of God lives on the kingdom of God lives on and we belong to it this is a miraculous thing because Jesus said in Matthew 5 48 that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in other words no sin It's going to be a sinless kingdom with a sinless king and by sinless citizens. So you sit there and say, okay, I am not sinless. How in the world am I a part of that kingdom? It's because God is not only qualified, delivered, and transferred us. God has also redeemed us. Verse 14. God has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. That is how we find ourselves this morning, all of us qualified and fit to be subjects of Christ's eternal saving kingdom. It is because we have first redemption in Christ. We have been set free from our bondage to sin. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the kingdom of God, right? We're slaves to sin. And yet verse 24, we can be justified as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As first, we've been bought back. Bought back. As First Peter 1, 18 through 19 says this, Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Believer, in Christ you have been redeemed. Where are you looking for your joy outside of that? 
You have been redeemed. And that redemption is seen primarily in that we have been forgiven of all of our sins. Every iniquity ever performed against the holy God has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And you stand this morning completely clothed in the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness means to pardon, literally to send away. And through the redemption that is ours through faith in Christ Jesus, God has sent our sins away forever. As Psalms 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And Micah 7 verse 19 puts it this way, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And it's all because of Christ. That's what Paul wants these Colossian believers to see. It's all because in Christ you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Christ's death on the cross paid the price to redeem us. And on that basis, when we trusted in him, God forgave our sins, qualified us for an inheritance, delivered us from the powers of darkness, and made us citizens of Christ's eternal kingdom. What a God to be thankful for. Amen? He's done all of this for you in Christ Jesus. And ultimately, that is the truth that transforms. It is the truth that you, this morning, are in Christ Jesus. And you are complete in Him. As we grow in our knowledge of that transforming truth as revealed in God's word, the truth of Christ being our life, the truth of Christ being our strength, the truth of Christ being our joy, our all, we begin to bear forth much fruit, we begin to bear up under much trials, and we begin to bear, belt out much praise to God. We are complete in Him. So who is He? Who is this one? In whom we have found our all. Come back next week and find out. But Paul reminds us here, the Colossians and us this morning, all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. How can we desire to do anything less than praise Him and please Him fully for the great things He has done? So, do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord this week? Do you want to be fully pleasing to Him in how you behave before a watching world? Then take time every day for God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. Be in His Word daily. Let God make you fruitful. Let God make you powerful. Let God make you thankful this week. Let God transform you by his truth this is the word of god the truth that transforms from colossians 1 9 through 14 which i now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience to that end let's pray father we thank you for giving us a taste of what is to come in this study father thank you for reminding us that in Christ Jesus, we, we have been transformed. That in Christ Jesus, who is our vine, 
we can be fruitful. That in Christ Jesus, who is our intercessor, our Savior, our Lord, we can be powerful. That in Christ Jesus, who is our redemption, our forgiveness, our grace from you, we can be thankful. Father, we thank you for the transforming truth that we are in Christ. I pray for future weeks, help us to understand this truth more, that it might revolutionize the way we live our daily weeks, that it might revolutionize the way we approach our trials in life, that it might revolutionize the way we look on our outlook on life of whether we are happy or sad, that we would have joy because of Jesus. Father, help us to show the watching world that you exist That Jesus Christ is real, alive in the hearts and minds of those who have trusted in him by how we live our lives this week. Give us the truth to produce produce in us transformation this week for your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.